Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 7, Dionysius the Tyrant. Before we begin, I want to correct two pronunciation mistakes I have made in the last few episodes. First, I have been calling the first Greek tyrant of Syracuse, Gelon, when in fact I believe the pronunciation is Gelon. Second, the supreme leaders of the Carthaginian state were called Safites, not Safets. Although I warned you that I would probably end up pronouncing these names phonetically, I wanted to correct these mistakes just so that the next time you're at a cocktail party and discussing ancient Carthaginian history, your friends won't laugh at you when you mispronounce Gelon and Safit due to my mistake. Alright, now that that's settled, on to the episode. Last time, we left Carthage in the ascendancy on the island of Sicily. Powered by her new double harbor and revitalized infrastructure, Carthage steamrollered several allied cities belonging to Syracuse, and even threatened to destroy Syracuse herself at one point. Despite fending off a massive Athenian invasion three years before, Syracuse was no match for the Carthaginian onslaught, and the Carthaginians nearly had Syracuse in their grasp before they inexplicably decided to make peace with Dionysius, tyrant of Syracuse. Although the Carthaginians had likely suffered heavily from plague and were reluctant to begin a long and protracted siege of Syracuse, which would take a heavy toll in lives and money, today we will see how Carthage would come to regret hesitating to humble her rival on Sicily. Back in the city of Syracuse, Dionysius had skillfully maneuvered his way through the political turmoil of the city in order to seize power. While the democratic and oligarchic factions of the city feuded with one another in endless rounds of coups and counter-coups, Dionysius harangued the people about the Carthaginian threat and the need to secure the city. Heeding his words, the citizens elected him to the board of generals in charge of the hoplite army. After faking an attack on his own life, Dionysius received a personal guard of 600 hoplites from the citizens as his own bodyguard. He later raised their numbers to a thousand, and using these men and the ever-present menace of Carthage, Dionysius soon had all of Syracuse under his control. Although of modest birth and a mere mercenary adventurer, Dionysius was a man who was born to command. Tall and red-haired, Dionysius believed he had been marked for greatness when a swarm of bees had settled in his horse's mane, a good omen among the Sicilians. Ambitious, fierce, and ruthless, Dionysius yet had strong charisma and an electric personality that allowed him to dominate the Syracusan scene for decades. He was considered a powerful and persuasive orator, an extremely important quality that was highly valued in the cultured Greek states, and he had a judicious mixture of political cunning, high intelligence, and courage when dealing with both his friends and his enemies. His primary drive, to increase his power and realm as much as possible, brought him into constant conflict with the Carthaginians and the other Greek city-states in Magna Graecia. Like other great men in the Hellenic world, Dionysius fancied himself an accomplished and cultured scholar, 
and he often wrote poems and plays for the local theaters. His court was filled with distinguished Greek scholars, including the famed Plato himself, and Dionysius would often recite his poetry to his academic audience. However, though an accomplished ruler, Dionysius seems to have been a, how shall we say, less than stellar poet. But, like many would-be artists, he loved his work to a fault and did not take criticism well. Once, when Dionysius asked the gifted poet Philoxenus what he thought of the tyrant's latest poem, Philoxenus told Dionysius his honest opinion that there just wasn't much to it. Enraged, Dionysius threw Philoxenus into the quarries as punishment for his rude behavior. Before long, Philoxenus' friends convinced Dionysius to release him, but unfortunately, Philoxenus arrived back at the palace just in time for another poetry reading. When Dionysius asked Philoxenus what he thought now, Philoxenus muttered, Back to the quarries. Having secured his position in Syracuse, Dionysius commandeered the island of Ortigia, the island just off the coast of Syracuse containing the citadel of the city, for himself. Here he established his own palace along with quarters for his friends and advisors, as well as extensive barracks for his mercenary hoplites. A wooden bridge connected his island to the mainland, which, in times of crisis, to render his island fortress nearly impregnable. Separated from the main section of the city by the sea channel, and surrounded by his friends and hoplite guard, Dionysius should have felt extremely secure in his position. However, ancient writers claim that he lived in perpetual fear of being murdered, and his efforts to avoid the invisible blade of the assassin border on the absurd. The famed Roman orator Cicero claimed that Dionysius, unwilling to trust any barbers, taught his daughters to shave him. When he thought them too dangerous to be trusted with scissors or a razor, he required them to use heated walnut shells to singe his hair and beard. His precautions extended beyond grooming, though. Every night before he went to bed, he had his room and both his wives thoroughly searched. He also installed a broad trench around his bed, and every night after the search, he would cross over a plank to his bed and then rapidly pull it across to secure his bedchamber. Although these stories from Cicero should be taken with a hefty chunk of salt, Cicero wrote four centuries after Dionysius' time, it is likely that no matter how secure he looked, Dionysius, like many tyrants, had a healthier sense than most of his own mortality. Having placed the city of Syracuse firmly under his thumb, Dionysius turned to the next goal on his agenda, driving the Carthaginians from Sicily into the sea. Although he had succumbed to necessity by signing Carthage's peace treaty in 405 BC, Dionysius quickly set his sights on the next round. Before the ink was even dry, Dionysius began stockpiling weapons, hiring and training soldiers, and fitting out warships for the coming conflict. Dionysius also hired teams of military engineers and siege specialists who provided him with heavy engines capable of battering cities into submission. In fact, 
One specialist team of military engineers invented a brand new siege engine, the catapulticon, or catapult, which was shaped like a large crossbow and fired heavy arrow bolts. This would be the first time such siege equipment was ever used in Sicily. Preparing for the worst-case scenario, Dionysius also installed massive walls around Syracuse, nearly 14 miles long and 10 feet thick. In conjunction with the walls, he commissioned a large fortress called the Urialis along the northwest hills of the city. Besides being an impressively strong fortress, Urialis has the distinction of being the oldest castle in Europe, and its remains are still visible today. Scholars estimate that in order to build the Urialis fortress, 300 tons of stone would have to be installed every day for five years. By 397 BC, Dionysius was ready. Portraying himself as a Greek liberator, he unleashed his long-prepared army into action. Storming the Carthaginian merchant colony in Syracuse, his men killed or exiled all the Phoenicians in the city, seized their goods, and burned their ships. Other Greek cities followed his example and plundered the Carthaginian merchant quarters. Next, Dionysius quickly marched his forces across the island to the ancient Phoenician colony of Moitia on the far western coast of Sicily. Founded by the Phoenicians in the 8th century BC, the city of Moitia was situated on an island off of the coast of Sicily. Like the Ortigia in Syracuse, a long causeway connected the island to the mainland. Moitia had long been a prosperous and wealthy city due primarily to its rich salt trade, produced using large windmills and drying pans. Due to its proximity to Carthage and its defensible strategic position, Moitia became a staging point for many Carthaginian expeditions into the island. Besides being surrounded by a lagoon, the city had 20-foot thick walls right up to the water's edge, along with 20 towers. Due to the lack of space on the island, the citizens built their houses on top of each other, sometimes reaching an astonishing six stories high, leaving them towering above the battlements. By besieging Moitia, Dionysius hoped to cut off Carthaginian reinforcements to Sicily. Caught completely off guard due to the speed and ferocity of Dionysius's attack, Carthage scrambled to aid the Moitians. A severe plague in the city compounded the difficulties of hiring an army. Carthage, as we remember, had no standing citizen army and relied heavily on mercenaries, and it would be a long time before an expedition could be fitted out to aid Moitia. However, the Carthaginian navy was dispatched under Himilco, the old Meganid general who had made peace with Dionysius eight years before. Elected as Safit of Carthage, Himilco now stood at the pinnacle of Carthaginian power, and he led his navy to attack the harbor of Syracuse, hoping to draw off Dionysius by the diversion. Though he burned many Syracusan ships in the harbor, Himilco failed to force Dionysius to break the siege. Changing tactics, Himilco next sent a fleet of a hundred triremes to Moitia to support the defenders. Since we will discuss many naval engagements going forward, 
Now would be a good time to pause a moment to describe the ancient warships so we will have a good picture of the respective ships each side had. One of the most iconic was the trireme. A trireme was a galley ship propelled by three banks or rows of oarsmen, hence its name. The three rows, top, middle, and bottom, were staggered in a step-like fashion below deck. Each row contained one oarsman, and due to their staggering, the rows produced the perfect balance between space and power. Contrary to popular belief, these oarsmen were typically free men who treated rowing as an honorable profession. During most campaigns, these men were paid well, and often even bands of foreigners hired themselves out as professional rowers. As well as providing skilled rowing, the employment of freemen had another benefit by effectively increasing the fighting manpower on every ship due to the reserve of rowers below deck. Besides oars, the ships also carried sails, which were left ashore if a battle was imminent. The trireme itself was a masterful balance of speed, strength, and stability. The hull was typically 120 feet long by 18 feet wide. This narrow, long design allowed for the maximum rower space and therefore speed to be achieved without compromising the ship's integrity. In fact, all aspects of the trireme's design, from the length versus the width to the placement of the center of gravity, were so perfectly balanced to the peak of their capabilities that if any variable was altered even slightly, the entire ship would be compromised. Propelled by an experienced crew during fine weather, a trireme could reach travel distances of 150 miles a day in an emergency, though often they would move at a slower pace to conserve energy. Despite the ship's length, the ship's draught, which is the amount of the hull underwater, was only three feet, allowing for it to be beached easily. Due to the light woods used in the construction and the skillful balance design, a trireme could easily be beached and carried by as few as 140 men. Since a trireme's crew typically had 180 rowers and 14 marines, as well as six or so officers, there were typically plenty of hands available, and the usual practice of admirals was to beach their ships every night in order to both avoid the dangers of sudden storms at sea and to allow their men to rest. A large bronze ram often highly decorated, would be attached to the front or prow of the ship for ramming. Success breeds not only envy, but also imitation, and the trireme was no exception. Over the centuries, fierce debate has erupted around whether the Greeks or the Phoenicians were the first to invent the ship that dominated Mediterranean warfare for three centuries. Unsurprisingly, most of the Greek writers claim that the Corinthians invented the trireme in the 8th century BC. However, some Greek historians, notably Clement of Alexandria, insist that the Sidonians, Phoenicians from the city of Sidon, were the first to commission triremes. And this is further supported by carved reliefs depicting Phoenician ships with three decks. Yet the debate continues to this day, and for me, it's just too close to call. So I'll leave it up to you to decide the honor of who invented the trireme, Team Phoenicia or Team Greece. 
Although we are unsure who developed the trireme, there is no doubt who made her formidable successor. That distinction goes to none other than our man of the hour, Dionysius. Dionysius really got his money's worth out of the military inventors he hired back in 405 BC. Not only did they give him a revolutionary precision artillery piece and the catapult, but they also revamped his navy by introducing a hulking monster, which capitalized and expanded on the trireme success. Enter the Quinquireme, the ship which would be fielded in huge numbers in the coming Punic Wars. With a length of just over a hundred feet, the Quinquireme was much broader than the trireme, allowing for two or more rowers to be added hence its nickname, the Five. Due to its broad nature, the quinquereme was heavier and carried much larger crews than the smaller triremes, often having nearly 400 men on board, including a large contingent of marines and archers. Sometimes even artillery pieces were mounted on the ship's decks as well. The quinquereme would soon send the venerable trireme into retirement, becoming the new mainline warship of Mediterranean empires. To round off our naval overview, we'll quickly take a look at how these ships fought. The most favored maneuver was the Periplus, where the attacking ship rammed the defender with its bronze ram while going at full speed. Typically, the goal was not just to punch a hole in the opposing ship, but also to rupture as large a gap as possible along the whole hull due to the violence of the blow. The second favored tactic, the Diecplus, was even more devastating. Here, the attacking ship would launch head-on towards its opponent. At the last moment, the attacker would veer off and rake down the side of the enemy ship, snapping oars and breaking the backs and ribs of the opposing oarsmen. Disabled on one side, the enemy ship would float in a circle, presenting its broadside for a perfect ramming. Another favorite tactic, boarding the enemy ship with grapples, saw widespread use throughout naval battles, where the marines and oarsmen of each side would fight hand-to-hand on decks slippery with water and blood. Now that we know enough about ancient navies to be dangerous, we can return to Moitia. Himiko arrived with his 100 triremes at the harbor of Moitia and fell upon Dionysius's transports which were lying on the beach, destroying most of them. Having cut off Dionysius's mobility, Himilco then blocked the Syracusan fleet within the harbor of Moitia. Undeterred, Dionysius placed extra slingers and archers on his ships, and using his catapults from land, began harassing the Carthaginian ships. That night, Dionysius had his men build a road of wooden planks across the peninsula of the harbor to the open sea. Carrying their lighter ships across this road, the Syracusans launched 80 triremes into the sea before morning. When the sun rose, the astonished Carthaginians saw that they were in danger of being surrounded by the Syracusans, and Himilco reluctantly beat a hasty retreat back to Carthage. One can imagine the feelings of the defenders of Moitia as they watched the Carthaginian fleet disappear into the horizon. They had destroyed the causeway which led to the city at the start of the siege, but day by day, Dionysius's engineers were advancing a new mole towards the walls. Besides being constantly peppered by the new catapults, 
The besieged citizens watched as Dionysius's massive rams and high siege towers, many taller than even the six-story buildings, drew closer and closer to the walls. Dreading to fall into the hands of the Syracusans, the defenders continued a valiant resistance, but by late summer, they saw the writing on the wall. The siege engines had done their work, and though the Moichans had constantly thrown boiling pitch and firebrands onto the equipment in desperate attempts to burn it, the Greeks organized firefighting teams to douse the flames as soon as they sprang up. Now, the heavy infantry marched through the breach walls into the city, but the battle was far from over. For days, the Moichans fought from street to street and house to house, the men barricading the streets and fighting hand to hand, the women, children, and elderly throwing missiles down on the attackers from above. Finally, exhausted and enraged by the stubbornness of the city's defense, the Greeks showed no mercy, slaughtering men, women, and children as they cleared the city block by block, house by house. Even Dionysius could not stem the tide of his men's fury, and only the Phoenicians who took shelter in the Greek temples escaped the slaughter. All the Greeks who had fought on the Carthaginian side were seized and crucified. By the end of the fighting, Moitia, once one of the proudest cities of Carthaginian Sicily, lay reduced to a pile of smoking rubble. Having dealt the Carthaginians a severe blow, Dionysius quickly moved to besiege the Carthaginian ally of Segesta. But Himilco appeared off the coast with a formidable navy accompanied by a strong land army. After landing with the army to march along the coast, Himilco left his lieutenant Mago in charge of the fleet of 300 triremes and 300 transports to shadow him. But Mago's fleet outpaced the Carthaginian army until it was suddenly face-to-face -face with the Syracusan fleet of 180 quinqueremes and triremes, commanded by Dionysius' brother, Leptines. Dionysius, readily grasping that his quinquereme detachment was far better manned and equipped than any ship the Carthaginians could muster, had ordered Leptines to keep his ships in close formation for maximum firepower and stability. However, like most brothers, Leptines would have none of it from his older bro. Instead, he did the exact opposite, launching a frontal assault into the Carthaginian fleet. Although initially driven back by the heavier ships, the Carthaginians used their numbers and maneuverability to outflank the Greek ships, rendering their advantage in armament and manpower negligible. Besides his trireme detachment, Mago had detached rams to his transport ships in order to increase their effectiveness. In their disordered formation, the Greeks could not support each other, and the Carthaginians swarmed them. In the ensuing battle, Leptines was forced to retreat after losing a hundred ships and approximately 20,000 sailors. Now it was Dionysius's turn to be worried. Fearing to be encircled by the Carthaginian navy and army, he abandoned the siege of Segesta and retreated back to Syracuse. Meanwhile, Himilco retook Moitia and in retaliation for the destruction of the city, leveled the Syracusan ally of Messina. This business done, Himilco led the survivors of Moitia back to the western coast of Sicily. Although he might have considered rebuilding Moitia, he 
he settled on founding a new city at a strategic position on the western coast of Sicily, Lilibaeum. Situated on the westernmost portion of mainland Sicily, Lilibaeum was intended to be far more than a mere colony. Nearly within sight of the grim reminder of Moitia, Lilibaeum from the start was to be a maximum security port, a symbol of Carthaginian power and prestige on Sicily. The Carthaginians carefully laid out the city's formidable defenses. First, a deep ditch 28 yards wide stood barring the passage to the walls. The walls themselves were 20 feet high and made from limestone reinforced with stone and mud brick. Rectangular towers and strong gatehouses punctuated the walls at intervals, while below ground was a labyrinth of passages, galleries, and trenches that ran through the city past the defenses into the outer fields and walls so that messages could be sent and surprise attacks launched if the city came under siege. Funnily enough, in one of these tunnels, archaeologists have found the sketches and doodles of bored soldiers stationed underground, depicting warriors, ships, weapons, Punic inscriptions, and just to show that there is nothing new under the sun, erotic scenes. These daunting fortifications and complex defenses at Lilibaeum signaled a shift in Carthage's strategy in Sicily. No longer would she be content with maintaining a laissez-faire attitude towards her Sicilian colonies. Now, smaller fortress cities modeled on Lilibaeum began to appear all over western Sicily. In the face of the lesson of Moitia and the ever-growing power of Dionysius and the Syracusans, Carthage desired to entrench herself and fortify her possessions to prevent another such disaster. Although these colonies became commercial powerhouses in their own right due to trade and manufacturing, they were first and foremost military institutions established to guard Carthaginian interests in the trade routes surrounding Sicily. Another change was Carthage's decision to maintain a large standing army indefinitely in Sicily. Previously, after a campaign, the mercenaries had been disbanded to seek other employment. Now, fearing another Syracusan assault, the Carthaginians chose to maintain large garrisons at Lilibaeum and the other fortress cities to guard against invasion. Indeed, the city of Lilibaeum was so well fortified and defended during the Carthaginian period in Sicily that it was never conquered by a besieging army. With the towers of Lilibaeum rising behind him, Himilco turned to settle the score with Dionysius in Syracuse. Again, the Carthaginians marched on Syracuse, this time placing it under a strict siege. Yet, with all his other qualities, Dionysius possessed no small degree of good luck, for no sooner had the Carthaginians settled in when disease, probably typhus, broke out in their camps. The soldiers died so fast that their bodies could not all be buried, and Dionysius, seizing the opportunity, sallied forth to harass and attack the Carthaginians on all fronts. Desperate now due to the debilitating loss of so many of his men, Himoko negotiated a secret deal with Dionysius to allow him and all the Carthaginian citizens under his command to depart for home after paying a ransom of 300 talents. Slipping away back to Carthage, Himoko abandoned the Carthaginian mercenaries to fend for themselves. While some, like the Iberians, 
banded together and resisted until Dionysius agreed to take them into his service, most were captured and enslaved. Back in Carthage, the citizens were outraged by Himilco's conduct. As a Safit, one of the two supreme leaders of the greatest empire in the western Mediterranean at that time, Himilco showed poor form by sneaking back home after deserting his men in Sicily. He would spend the rest of his life dressed in paltry robes and going around to the temples of Carthage accusing himself of impiety and calling for divine retribution on his head. Finally, bereft by grief, he bricked himself up in his house and starved himself to death. Carthage herself became a city in mourning almost overnight, and the Magonid family's power was dealt a fatal blow. Not once, but twice in Sicily, the Carthaginian armies had faltered under their leadership, and the time had come for a new dynasty to take the reins. Carthage would continue to fight with Dionysius in the years to come. The Carthaginians won a crushing victory against him at Cronium, where they even managed to kill his brother, Leptines, but they were never able to do more than contain Dionysius during his reign. Although Dionysius, in turn, would never achieve his ultimate objective of driving the Carthaginians into the sea, he carried his wars into Lower Italy and even the Balkans, conquering the Greek city of Regium and forging a Syracusan hegemony that stretched from Sicily to central Italy. Ever a man of culture, Dionysius is reported to have died in 367 BC due to over-imbibing after one of his plays, called The Ransom of Hector, won first place at a minor drama festival in Athens. In all, he reigned for 38 years, the longest of any of the Syracusan tyrants. Though accused of vindictiveness and cruelty, Dionysius remains as one of the most effective and dynamic tyrants Syracuse ever had. Through careful preparation and daring execution, Dionysius forced Carthage onto the defensive. No mean feat considering the wealth, power, and resources the Carthaginians could bring to bear. Had the Carthaginians not dug in their heels at Lilibaeum, had the Syracusans been able to drive them off the island, some historians speculate that Dionysius could have led his armies up the length of Italy and even curtail the growing power of Rome. Yet it was not to be. Next time, we will see how two more Syracusan tyrants would make the Carthaginians pay a heavy price to maintain her fortress cities, and how one of them, the self-proclaimed Alexander of the West, would bring the war to Carthage herself. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review about the podcast on the homepage. It really helps me keep it going strong. Additionally, make sure you're subscribed so you won't miss out on the latest episodes. Until we meet next time, take care and read more history.